I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have yet again shone a light on racial inequalities across the globe. Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now. Not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Thank Taste you. of democracy, very good. G'day there and welcome to this week's Democracy Sausage Extra from the Policy Forum studio at the ANU's Crawford School of Public Policy. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian Studies Institute and can I just say regarding that that we've just issued our second annual report under the signatures of the ANU's Pro-Vice-Chancellor for International Strategy, Professor Sally Wheeler, and the Aussie Director, Professor Paul Pickering. And it makes for some interesting reading about the multiple ways in which the ANU, via the Australian Studies Institute in particular, is consolidating the study of this country in politics, geography, the performing and visual arts and literature, and also coordinating the numerous Australian Studies centres around the world. And believe me, there are more of them than you think. And of course, Democracy Sausage features prominently there also, so check it out. Now, what could be more intrinsic to the understanding of Australia than its people, or rather, its population? Where is it? Where's it been? And where might it go? What are the forces shaping our population, and are we slave to those forces, or can we shape them ourselves? I'm delighted to be talking this week to one of the foremost experts on this field. She goes by the name of Dr. Demography on Twitter, and she's the author of a captivating new book called the story of us, or alternatively, the story of Australia. It's a warm welcome to the ANU's very own Dr. Liz Allen. Liz, welcome to what I'm rebranding for this special episode, Demography Sausage. Oh, I love it. I love it. So I will have to pull you up on something. It's the future of us. Oh, the future of Uh, us. So within the book, I talk about the story of us. But uh, the book in totality is is referred to as the future of well, us. Well, I'm a stickler for accuracy, except obviously <laughs> in my own uh, uh, recommendation of the title. It's actually a much better title, The Future of Us. <laughs> uh, it, it feels fitting, I think. Uh, it was written and um, and 
certainly kind of published before we we really realised the impact of COVID, uh, but it's still certainly very, very relevant and frames a conversation that I'm glad that we're having now in the current climate is that we, you know, we, we hear the word unprecedented, you know, it's unprecedented times. It's, mm. um, you know, we've never experienced this before. And that gives us opportunities as much as challenges to re kind of sit back and take stock of ourselves, uh, who we are, our trajectory, I guess, mm. and, and really where we want to be and how we're going to get there. And so it, um, while I never anticipated a pandemic to occur, um, it's, um, it's probably a good time to be considering the future of us, the it's, future it's, of it's, Australia. It's a very good time. Uh, of course, it's a very unsettling time as well mm. because the hardest thing to understand in terms of the historical weight of something, the hardest time to do it is during that event. It's very difficult to contextualise it. I mean, we can understand it in ways that people who aren't here, weren't here, mm. will never understand because we're experiencing it, we're living through this. Mm. Um, but we can't necessarily understand it in its longer-term historical context yet. So we, we you know, these, these, this mm. is a real kind of challenge to understand how, how do you um, make policy from here mm. and how long-reach or long-running are the implications of the things that are happening now, the changes that are being wrought and also the policy responses that are, that are thought up in the, in, 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 the, in the process. So the cool thing for me about demography um, and I like the kind of visual concept of sausages being made kind of in a factory. Mm. Uh, that's what I visualise right now, this idea of, you know, we, we, we look back and demography enables us to, you know, think of the kind of the pipeline of a sausage uh, and series of sausages being made. We can look to past occurrences and past population um, uh, changes and, and the like. That's yeah. exactly right, yeah, mm. and and socioeconomic um, shocks in the same kind of vein. And that allows us to learn lessons from those and then take those lessons and apply them to the now and then kind of look Stand here, right at the now, hot sausages in hand, um, <laughs> to the future of of where we might be. And if we look to what the most uh, similar circumstances um, that um, that have occurred in the past to where we are now, we've got the 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 Great Depression, mm -hmm. of course, to refer back to, and kind of um periods around war but also there are so many similarities around the so-called Spanish influenza of 1919 in Australia and how it affected us here that we can then borrow and hold tight those sausages neatly packed and consider um how we might respond um to things that we're not certain may or may not happen. So this kind of we're in this period of great uncertainty when it comes to data, when it comes to what's actually happening, right? We just have to look to Melbourne to consider that great anticipation that people kind of, you know, take hold of their breath and think, what are the numbers today? Yeah. That uncertainty 
kind of makes us stop and pause and shift into survival mode. Mm. So it kind of stifles any ability to plan while we're still dealing with something so so uh, now and so raw and and you know it's a matter so of life and death. unquantified in a way because that's you right. don't know how it ends, right? So that's we actually don't know if it will things. end, <laughs> right? That's that's what we're faced with right now, yeah. and um, and I think that demography. I might be a little bit biased, but demography allows us a superpower of sorts to consider these things. How have we responded in the past in terms of population dynamics, births? deaths, population movements, um, and how might we be able to learn from that and apply it to the now? Well, let's be really basic about this. Demography, can you give us a good sort of working description of what demography is? Demography, if I give you the the kind of undergraduate 101 kind of explanation That's of demography. That's about the level I'm operating <laughs> It's raw. It, it's really boring and stale, right? Demography is about understanding the characteristics, um, composition and location of population across, across geography, basically. So as a demographer, I'm interested in knowing about uh, the popular population dynamics of change, with our, which are births, deaths, and migration, um, and what a population is composed of in terms of age and sex distribution, socioeconomic distribution, and how that plays out and how that might influence or translate other behaviours like um, our gender norms, family dynamics, and our everyday interactions that describe um, how our circumstances of our birth and our demographic characteristics kind of influence who are who we are and how we behave and what we do. So take, for example, something I'm keenly interested in, given my own particular background um, as a single point of demography, is, <laughs> is this idea that um, we know from, from the literature that, um, and from previous research that there's very little social mobility. That is that the circumstances of your birth, the circumstances of your parents, the socioeconomic circumstances of your parents determines much of your life, the trajectory of your life course, your level of education, your income, your social standing. And that to me is quite jarring, this idea, you know, here demography is destiny. At an individual level, we certainly see um, that to some degree. And I think in Australia, we like to think we're fair and that people, if you have a go, you get a go and you'll be right, mate. We like to think we're fair and we also like to think we're sort of classless. And it's not true. And it's not true. And that's something that I think as a former poor kid who has, you know, experienced disadvantage. But who now has a PhD. So in a sense, you bucked that trend. I'm a deviant. I am a deviant. <laughs> I'm, I'm one of, a, and it's actually known. It's known as a deviant case, one that's dropped out um, and gone against the grain. That carries some responsibility, right, mm. that I, I speak for, for, the, for those that are left behind. But here's the thing about poverty and disadvantage is that it never leaves you. So I'm also a teen mum. I'm no longer a teen, but I still say I'm a teen mum. Why? Because there are, there are epigenetic factors that come with 
um, with those experiences early in life and even before your birth that influence you as a kind of genetic um, person in space. Um, and it, it changes the way that your brain processes um, kind of the cognitive processes of scarcity. So there's, you know, there's a, a saying that um, – uh, and a belief certainly that poor people are dumb when it comes to money. Poor people aren't dumb when it comes to money. Again, research shows that what happens is when you're faced with scarcity, your cognitive processes change because you're so caught up in trying to survive that you don't focus on or you cannot focus on outward-looking and and that stays with you because I, those outward looking things are, are much more abstract. They're, they're far less tangible. The idea of uh, an overseas holiday or a new mm. car next year, or of saving for your retirement or whatever these are these are quite secondary to a much in, in a much more hand to mouth existence. And so, in a sense, they're quite abstract. You may not get to retirement precisely, right? And yeah. that's the thing is that when you're surviving, and you're thinking about how am I going to live today, tomorrow, or feed my kids. You're not thinking about a holiday because odds are you ain't getting one. No. <laughs> and no, retire. You, really, you don't really imagine it. No, sense, because yeah. it's not, it's not a possibility you're talking mm. about mm. the fundamental of survival. And I think that that. And that changes also where you seek your pleasure. I mean, exactly, as we all need to, um, whether exactly. it be in, um, in food or sometimes in alcohol, alcohol but, you know, drugs, other, yep. Yeah, yep. because, uh, that people need relief from their circumstances and the harsher the circumstances, the more they need relief. That's right. But instead of understanding and stepping back and understanding the demographic kind of um, aspects that underpin those structural factors, we instead demonise individuals. You are a deficit. You are. There's something wrong with you if you are born into a particular set of circumstances and can't get out. So... I still, you're right. I'm a PhD. I, I, I work at a university. You could perhaps call me an elitist, but I don't feel that. I talk different. I, I, um. You don't I'm, sound like an elitist to me. No, no. I'm a yobbo from Western, the Western suburbs of Sydney who went to Mount Druitt TAFE and, um, um, you know, kind of, uh, learned learned about life on the streets so to speak you know mm. that and that's something that i carry with great responsibility but great um delight almost mm. that um i survived and i can make a difference using my demographic superpower and my cape you survived and you prevailed and you haven't left that behind i mean as you say there are y- your argument is that there are some cognitive Mm. characteristics of that background which you recognize in yourself and which uh you um you know which never leave you Mm. but you're not trying to leave them either you're being quite open and honest about that and i think that's very refreshing and and here look i'm going to give you a complete insight into myself at the supermarket when you've experienced poverty you shop differently it's a totally different experience it's a stressful experience you go through, and and I, you know, I I need to wear glasses, but I don't wear my glasses when I go shopping because I know where things are in my local supermarket, and I don't want to be distracted by other things that could be. So I go straight to what's needed, and I leave. 
And at the checkout, I always go in and I f- I'm feeling it coming on now, sweating palms. Really? I get beads of sweat, fearful that my card is going to be rejected. And it's, it's still, it's like almost like a post-traumatic stress experience, this fear of not being able to make ends meet. And the sad thing is that we like, again, we like to think we're in a classless society, a fair society where we're, where we're all together in Australia. The reality is that that's not the case. And more so, if we even think about a place like Canberra, everyone thinks that the ACT is, you know, this, this kind of really wealthy area. Homogenized kind of yeah. middle class community. They're all working in government and mm. they're all doing great. And they all own homes and multiple properties. It hides inequality in a really pernicious way, in a way that traps and, and kind of confines and compresses people down because it's hidden. We can't acknowledge it and we can't help. So take, for example, at school, if you're a kid who is kind of among those living in hidden poverty in an area, you might be living, you might be considered homeless based on the characteristics of the census because you're in an overcrowded house um, or, or an un, kind of unstable circumstances. You might be couch surfing um, and you go to school in an area that's kind of well-to-do purely by the, the postcode of your, mm. you know, could be a public school and they go, okay, we're going to do a band tour to Melbourne which a lot of Canberra schools do, obviously not in COVID. So mm. there are small mercies, I guess, of COVID. Um, and it's going to cost you $1,000 and you've got to pay it by a blah, blah, blah date. And then the kid who's probably never been on a camp doesn't go again and it's never noticed why that kid doesn't go. Mm. Never afforded the opportunities that the rest of the kids at that school are afforded. And that kid then uh, is aware of all the stories that come out of that camp that become the currency of exchange between his or her school friends after that for months and months yeah. afterwards and, and wasn't there and is very conscious of it all the time. And you've, you've, you've pinpointed a really significant thing about Australian society. It's who you know, not what you know. And unfortunately, we still see the importance of networks, you know, what school did you go to, what college were you in when you are at university, who did you hang out with, and we just have to look at the politicians in key positions who, you know, the front bench to actually see networks in action, the university you went to, the family name that you carry. We don't see poor kids in or people that look different in positions of power for a reason and that's because they don't get a go. There's no such thing as if you get a go, um, if you have a go, you get a go. It's not about how hard you work because these poor kids are working bloody hard to survive. I liken it to running to stand still. Mm. Thank you, you two, for that quote. Good song, by the way. <laughs> we need to take stock of that. And now's the time. We've got this opportunity to do that. One of the things you the phrases you mentioned a minute ago uh, was demography is destiny, which mm. of course Peter Costello made famous, um, yes. and he was making a, a, a you know valid enough point. Mm. But you go further than that, don't you? You say that it's it's not just about 
it's shaping us. It's about our ability to use demography to shape the national story or the future of us, as you have said in your book. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. It was so Peter Costello borrowed that saying. That, I, that, I figured he probably yeah. had. Most politicians don't. <laughs> That's say right, and things. he didn't quote. He didn't give a citation. So, uh, undergraduate 101 always give citation. People, you'll find yourself in trouble. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it's been around for a long while, and this idea that, and it comes from if we know the characteristics of our population, we can then see into the future somewhat and um, and project or even, and I hate the word predict, predict, don't say prediction when we're talking about demography, but anyway, I'll use it now. Okay. This idea that we can might see where we're going, right? So in that our demographic characteristics destine us for a particular outcome. A lot of people kind of poop on that idea and I, there are elements of truth in it, yes, in that the characteristics of our population are important to where we're going. But it's not the full story. It's not the full story. And it's not the full story and it shouldn't be the full story at an individual level. We should not be destined by the circumstances of our birth. So we're not captive to We shouldn't be, but we are. So here's the thing. I want demography to be more than destiny. I want demography and it should be because it is for me. You know, imagine Liz sitting at the microphone right now, swishing her hair back, standing tall and wearing a cape. That's what demography should be, a superpower, a strength where we where we look at the characteristics of our population. We look at and take stock at where we're doing well, how we're doing poorly. We identify those things. And then we seek structural remedies to that. How can we better support people to get out of their circumstances, to be a deviant so that deviance is no longer a technical term when we're talking about people that drop out of poverty and become someone who is recognised as a, as a world leader in whatever field. And I, I want people to be able to see demography as more than destiny we can reshape our story and we can harness and make good of the challenges that we're faced with by shifting them to opportunities. But we need leadership and we need commitment to do that. And we need, in the end, we need participation by everyone, in which case we could maybe coin a new term, demography is democracy. Ah, well, there you go. That sounds like a really good podcast. Hint, hint. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? Population underlies everything. And and without without an understanding of demography, we kind of undersell ourselves in that we kind of miss a key part of the story, if not the story. And so understanding demography is an understanding of us. Let's take a quick break there and come back in a moment with Dr. Liz Allen, who is giving us a very fascinating tutorial on demography. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now we're talking with Dr. Liz Allen about demography, of course, in this what we've rebranded demography sausage episode. Um, <laughs> now, Australia's population sits currently at what, sort of somewhere north of 25 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been a fairly rapid growth. I remember Kevin Rudd getting into a bit of trouble a while ago when he was Prime Minister, of course, for, for, for celebrating this rapid mm. growth and saying, I want to be. Uh, I want Australia to be. Uh, you know, I'm in favour of a big Australia. That's I think right. was his term. Mm. That's kind of happening anyway, isn't it? Um, we're getting. We 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 we're growing. Although we then have the advent of COVID. So yes, what are the forces that have driven us, driven our population growth? Uh, quite rapidly in recent years. It's mm. Obviously, it's immigration, right? So if we look at the kind of the way uh, the population changes, the way the population grows, there's this thing called a balancing equation. We've got on one side, we've got natural increase, which is the, the difference between um, births and deaths. And then on the other side, we've got net immigration, net overseas immigration. So the, the out... Um, uh, the in versus the out. Mm. Um, so if we look at kind of our most recent history, uh, Australia has grown largely due to that net immigration, the net overseas immigration. So component. we've had more people coming in than, than leaving Australia to live in other parts of the world. So. That, that, that's right. And it's taken up a larger share of that balancing equation versus natural increase. Right. So, so more, so our group, our growth is, uh, more due to net overseas migration than to births, uh, to natural increase within the population. Now, I want to be very specific here in that we, we really like to look at overall numbers. We like to look at what number of population we are right now and our growth rates. It's not those sorts of things that we should be paying a lot of attention to, but rather the composition of our population. What are we made up of in terms of our age distribution? Why is that important? Well, our current way of uh, doing the economy is that we require people, a particular kind of relative proportion of people in the workforce to contribute to um, the the finite pool of cash that the government uses to afford to pay for vital and essential infrastructure and services. At the moment, we're faced with more exits from the workforce than entrants. And so our very, very tightly kind of managed migration program in Australia fills that deficit, any potential deficit there, which is why we're seeing net overseas migration as a larger share because of our demographic characteristics. Now, And and also because our birth rate, our fertility rate, as it's often referred to, is actually in decline, as it, as it yes. has been in many other parts of the world. But ours has come off quite quickly. I think I was reading, I was reading numbers the other day that said above two births per women Early this century, like as in uh, 2002, 
but it's dropped now to what one point seven four birds. That's per right. Woman. So we 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 have in Australia we are considered below replacement level fertility, and in demography, fertility is the outcome of a live birth. Another cool word, fecundity. Mm-hmm. Um, say it fast to hundreds of undergrads and it's uh, like really funny. Mm-hmm. I love to do that, by the way. But that's an aside point. Um, fecundity is when we talk, that's the kind of lay term of fertility when we're talking about um, being fecund or able to to have children. So when we say fertility in demography, we're talking about the outcome of a live birth. So, um, yes, we're below replacement level, which is 2.1 around considered. Um, and we've seen our our kind of trend overall go downward, stabilising a little bit. But it, I anticipate and that that's pre-COVID, with, that's right? exactly yeah. right, pre-COVID. I would suspect, I do suspect that um, we're going to see fertility rates decline, um, and that's because this uncertainty, the scarcity, you can't even get your loo roll um, uh, needs met. You, people have lost their jobs, they've lost their entitlements. Um, they not they might be delaying or perhaps even foregoing having children during this period. Well, well let's come to that because some some people have read some of the indicators and come to precisely the opposite conclusion. They've seen uh, I don't mean demographers because I mean, <laughs> you looked shocked then. <laughs> people on Twitter maybe <laughs> perhaps, but, but but people on Twitter are people. That's it. Um, but I'm thinking. <laughs> Sorry, I just had this image. Are they always? Well, not all of them. Actually, that's a very good point. <laughs> Some of the people on Twitter. Well, put it this way: they've they've cited things like um, an increase in the uh, uh, the purchasing of pregnancy tests, mm. um, an increase in the use of dating apps, mm. an increase in uh, the use of uh, or sales in some adult stores. Yes, and. Overlaying on all of that, I guess, an assumption about people having a lot more time at home, yeah, and perhaps, uh, and perhaps procreating, yeah. Now, there's a difference, of course, between sex and 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 procreation. There is, um, in our species, at least, um, <laughs> which is an entirely different podcast, uh, which would be it, it, very it interesting. Is. That's, that's, <laughs> that's uh, democracy sausage after dark. Which, uh, <laughs> comes comes on later. It's a different kind. Yeah, of, yeah. yeah it's a <laughs> subscriber edition. <laughs> But but anyway, you can take those indicators and come to precisely the opposite conclusion from mm. the one I've just drawn, can't you? I mean, yep. uh, people uh, maybe d- d- are getting pregnancy tests because they're worried about being pregnant, not because they're trying yeah. to get pregnant. Or because they're not seeing their doctor because they're yes. not allowed to go into their doctor's surgery or they want to avoid the doctor. So pregnancy test sales according to some retailers are so, yes they're they're they've increased but um we're in a period of telehealth where that's the go and you're right some people might want to know as a way to to avoid being pregnant or to seek out an abortion early or because they want to rejoice in being pregnant but they don't want to rejoice by going to the doctor and getting COVID. That's the kind of thinking. The other thing too is that where, you know, you, you said so we've got on on one side we've got pregnancy tests increasing. We've got this idea that dating apps are, you know, people are going gung-ho on dating apps. Thing is they're not going gung-ho physically which is a pubs sort of a basic requirement for procreation. Exactly. And that comes to the ingredients necessary for a baby boom. Yes. We're not going to have a COVID baby boom. It's unlikely we'll be able to refer to a boom as coronials or whatever. 
even though that that's sounds good, morbid, but also fun. Name, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. But um, because we lack the necessary ingredients of a boom above expected trend. Okay, so what does that mean? We need pe- more people to partner and more people to be using um, less contraception, okay? And we don't see that. So, in fact, if we look at partnering, people are unable to partner because of the lockdowns. Uh, even if they're doing it via an app, they're not doing it physically. And that kind of couples with this idea that sex shops are doing a roaring trade because people aren't necessarily going out and, and seeing and meeting a physical partner or they're having fun with their present one which always, you know, that doesn't necessarily end in baby. Um, where are we? I've got completely um, well, mind-boggled by the idea of somewhere a, in an after-dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other one is contraception, and we know that contraception um, uh, sales has increased. Right, that does tend to mitigate against exactly, the uh, growth, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And there was an issue, um, I recall, at the beginning of the COVID kind of thing, people in Singapore were taking photos of empty shells of condoms and saying, holy cow, we're in a crisis because the manufacturing of the concern was that people weren't able to keep up with um, the normal need for, for condoms. But in actual fact, what it was was because people were buying more because disposable gloves weren't in stock. So they were walking around with lubricated condoms on their fingers. No wonder they couldn't partner up. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty uncharming. They were too slippery, but they were were using it. Um, To to press lift buttons. To press lift buttons and things like that to avoid touching communal so it was a, yeah. a barrier used for a good purpose, I guess. But so we don't we don't have those necessary ingredients for a boom. And what the other thing too is, you probably don't want a baby boom right now. Well, let, let's go to that because what is what is the uh, nineteen nineteen as you called it um, uh, the Spanish influenza mm. as it was you know it's a rather poor name for it. Yeah, but that's it is how, very that's poor how it's known. Name. Yeah. Um, what does that tell us? Did it, was there a slump then? I know it's a sort of a different world. It's a yes. hundred years ago, but well, do you know what? If we the the better comparison here with regard to birth rates is because we've got a uh, better data period. Um, is is the Great Depression right? Because it's actually about the economic dislocation Ex- rather than exactly. necessarily the, the virus, isn't it? Exactly, exactly, perfectly said. And so we, if we look at the Great Depression. Think about the time there. We did not have reliable contraception and yet people were delaying um, uh, having children or, or having fewer children during that period. We, if we look at the period of, of the Great Depression, birth rates fell very swiftly and and we never ever saw a rebound to the to the to the lengths that we we had prior so it's based on that information based on the kind of the socioeconomic situation that we're in now we're learning from the demography of the past to inform our expectations of the future so i suspect um, and the other thing too is that ivf it's a non-essential surgery it's classified as that and as a result of that, it's an elective thing, and so people have not been able to access IVF as as they normally would. And that's presumably devastating it's for de- some couples because some of them are operating right at the end of that fertility exactly. window, uh, and this is their last best hope, and yep. suddenly it's denied them. It's gone. And that's, for me, that's 
as a yeah, that's that, imagine that would be de- devastating. And and we know already from survey data from Hilda, the Housing Income Labor Dynamics in Australia survey, that people generally in Australia don't achieve their desired or intended fertility outcomes anyway, because life gets in the way. Hmm. And so, you know. And, and we know that economic insecurity just leads people to postpone. Yeah. Now, there's some evidence I think that you point to that that postponement, even if it is intended as a postponement, ends up being yeah. um, permanent. That's right. Because it, if or we it has look, a permanent effect on the overall family size. That's exactly right. So in Australia at the moment, where we differ from the 1930s um, is that um, uh, people are – have delayed having childbirth, uh, starting a family rather, very, you know, until they're comfortable. And in doing so, kind of the window of opportunity with regard to fecundity Mm. is shortened. So that already kind of um, constrains opportunities as well. So we're faced with what I think really is a perfect storm for kind of demographic trouble. And right at that moment, of course, we've stopped people coming into this country. Exactly. So this is exactly. a this is a double hit in that yeah. sense, isn't it? Yep, yep. And so, remember what I said is we've got um, fewer people going into the workforce than coming out. It's going to mean that we're going to have to reprioritize spending, and it's going to be you know think of your household budget. You have to prioritize what you can spend your money on, and without any in the absence of any kind of crazy or, or um, uh, fantastical shift in the way that we do monetary policy in Australia. We have to consider that that's how we're going to do budgets, right? And at the moment, budgets have been have been done in a way to favour one's re-election bids. And as a result of that, younger people have sacrificed and been the sacrifice, Right. Home ownership is going down. Um, job security is an issue. We've got this kind of perfect storm on an, on on so many levels that um, bearing the brunt of the future of us are young people, young people who are not going to be able to balance work and family, who aren't going to be able to dr- achieve the dream of what generations past have achieved. And so we we are at serious risk of having of having our living standards go backwards. Yeah, and that's and that the assumption of rising living standards has been has underpinned virtually everything we've done everything for, that we've done. for you know certainly since the war. Yeah. This idea that we are continuously growing except for the odd deviant year where we've you know we've had a recession, mm. you know, which has happened for Australia relatively infrequently. Mm. Uh, and the assumption has been that we are uh, growing as a as an economy, and that our living standards are generally increasing. Mm. And that the threat now is that that may, in fact, have there may be structural changes yes. that are being exposed right now, yes. and that will result in that assumption being overturned. Exactly. And it, I think for me, if we look at the so take this idea of inequality. We are faced with inequality becoming more entrenched and the difference between the haves and the have-nots getting greater, okay? It's, you know, it's, it's, it, the gap is widening. Why? Because at the moment we've got these perverse tax incentives that favour those wealthy and the, the networks and families 
of wealthy people. They favour multiple multiple property owners over people who've got no property at all. Where fa- you know people yep, who are renting are yeah. funding the yeah. property portfolios of the wealthy, and that that it doesn't seem fair. And so what we could be looking at is with this in, increasing economic disparity, this unfairness, mm. increasing political instability. Yeah, well, and and so if we look at not so much political instability it's it's it, political um uh, ways so I, I fear that covid has been weaponized for political purposes it's being used to further entrench a particular um view of the world and that is that more of a kind of a backward facing view of the world and more importantly an avoidance of reform of real reform we have a problem with reform generally in australia it's frightening and no one likes to do it and we don't do it because it's not favorable to the electorates we are faced now with our lack of kind of movement so a stagnation in the way that we operate in the world and the way that we operate among ourselves where we're just going to be constantly kind of navel-gazing or looking backwards and not standing on the now, thinking about and taking stock of us and our, our, and our the problems with us, putting on our cape, swishing our hair back, standing tall and going, okay, this is what needs to be done. We need leadership to get this reform done so that we can – leave this earth, this place at the end of our lives and go, you know what, we made a difference and we just didn't think for ourselves and we left nobody behind. Well, that's a, um, a it's a, a great aspiration to have, <laughs> but as you say, it's, it's pretty hard to see our policymakers rising to that challenge, at mm. least rising fully to it. There yeah. have been, to be fair, um, some fairly significant transformations uh, on the part of our political leaders, uh, the, you know, the, the current government, for example, has gone from a kind of a small government, mm. um, low, you know, e- everything was was about sort of driving the tax down, uh, tax mm. base down, um, and having uh, budget surpluses as if that was an end in itself, and they've become hyper Keynesians. They've had to be, yep. you know, they've they've had to borrow vast sums of money and pump that directly That's into right. the economy. Uh, and there is a recognition, I think, um, across the political establishment that the old ways aren't going to come back, That's at least not fully and certainly not in the short term. I think definitely, as you say, in the short term, we're doing what we need to do to survive. My concern is the, the, the kind of, um, the enduring what we're going to do from here on, and 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 as I say, I think this is a, a fabulous opportunity to take stock and consider the as we need to reprioritize things where we're going to be. What about at a more granular level? Do you do you expect that there'll be long term changes in the way we run our households, for example? I mean, there are a lot of households that have that have been forced into a restructure, if mm. I can put it like that. People yep. working from home. There are a lot of Dads, for example, who have had a crash course in the excruciating stress of being at home and managing sometimes multiple children and yes. the schooling thereof and, mm. and, and other things. Um, and, and on the plus side, seeing the advantages of being more involved in on a daily basis in their families. Mm. Is, is it possible that we'll see changes there, attitudinal changes? If we look to some of the data that has come out 
um, during uh, the COVID period around gender equality and the negotiation of, of family duties and things like that. There are positive signs, but there's also the same old. Women have disproportionately lost their jobs yes. um, uh, and are still disproportionately doing the large share of, of the juggle of family work. Um, and care. So the burden has fallen to women. And, but again, there are opportunities in that. We've shown again that there are failings within our, and our societal structure that means that women bear the brunt of that. And instead of kind of thinking about, um, you know, how are we going to, um, help mothers? We need to ship our, shift our focus and consider how are we going to help parents? And that means childcare and greater provisions for childcare, more accessible childcare, making workplaces more, um, fan, family friendly, um, and, and kind of slowly, I think we're going to see as a result of COVID changing social norms around caregiving and around that kind of the mental load that, that women bear as well. But it's going to be slow. And again, it's going to require leadership. Is there a challenge here for scholars, for social researchers to be very clear here in how they communicate? Because it is a historic moment. Mm. These are stresses uh, and weaknesses in the, in the political economy, which we are having laid bare for us by yes. this crisis. There's always a million ways you can change something and there's only yes. one way to keep it the same. And that's yes. why inertia so often wins. It's easy. Because there's a, there's multiple competing yeah. routes, but isn't it, uh, doesn't the responsibility now fall on on the academy and on social commentators to mm. to find a language yes. for our policymakers, for our leaders that that animates them, that motivates them, yes. that they can understand uh, the sort of changes you're talking about, recognizing the the um, the role that women are playing in the economy mm. and how how vulnerable they've been as being part of this precariat that uh, yes. don't have secure work. All of these things need to be, I, I guess, in some ways interpreted in econo-speak. How do we liberate the economic potential of all of these actors within the economy mm. for the social good, for the social and economic good? Mm. It's not just about a bunch of lefties saying, uh, you know, yep. you, Liberal Party, need to listen to our That's higher right. moral, you know, sort of come up onto our higher moral plane. It's about actually saying, look, there are these, there, there are, there's a whole lot of underutilization mm -hmm. going on here. A whole lot of exploitation, underutilization. Mm -hmm. There's free work being done. Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which this can all be much more efficiently organized. Mm. And, and uh, there are so many issues that you bring up there. And you're right. We need, um, the academy needs to be better at translating research. But at the same time, we've had, particular elements of the academy saying the same things over and over again and nobody listening. You're being right For doesn't matter. Reason, exactly. It does, hasn't and, mattered and on facts. climate. <laughs> Who needs facts when you've got the feels, right, really? Yeah. And and the other thing too is our higher education sector is being completely smashed. Hammered, yeah. Completely smashed. Mm. And so, we've, again, we've got so many perfect storms erupting that really – lead to a lot of 
Uncertainty. It's an exciting time to be a scholar, though. Um, it is. It is. You know, witnessing from the yes. inside, really, uh, this uh, epochal moment, if I can put it like that. Yeah. Liz Allen, it's been absolutely terrific having you on this special demography sausage. <laughs> I'm delighting in saying that. It's been a terrific discussion, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again. Uh, oh, look, I'm I'm very enthused by the idea of the after dark, but also a little bit frightened. <laughs> <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> I don't know how it works for radio either. Uh, uh, look, I look. <laughs> sounds like a sleaze fest. It does. It does. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much for, for being on here. And, and thank you for listening to Democracy Sausage Extra this week. And I'll be back uh, early next week with a, another episode. Until then, bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.